This episode explores graphic themes of death, violence, and attempted suicide. Please listen at your discretion. When I got into my town where I, where I lived, everybody kept looking at me, just talking to themselves, more secretive talking and then just looking at me. And I ignored everybody. I walked to the house. And outside the house, there's one of the elders. And one of the elders sees me and says, weren't you with your dad when this happened? Where were you? Where were you when your father needed you? I just pointed to the mountain. And then he says, talk to me. That's disrespectful. I'm talking to you. Why don't you talk to me? I pointed to my throat that I couldn't talk. And then of course he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said that you're supposed to be with your father. He said, you're a coward. You're supposed to defend him. I just turn around and look at him. I was very upset with him. Hi, I'm Wayne Jacobson, and this is my friend Lewis. The story of one of the most engaging men I've ever met and of the friendship that developed between us. It has transformed both of our lives and left us in grateful awe at the adventure of life on this little planet. In our last episode, Lewis, as a 15-year-old kid, watched his father die of a heart attack deep in the mountains, then had to defend his body from the coyotes in an all-night battle. As the new day dawns, he still has to find a way to get his father's remains 14 miles back to his village. He's hungry, exhausted, and without a voice that was shredded from the night's ordeal. All of that will complicate his day in ways he cannot imagine. And in it, he will also find a measure of grace. When I started seeing a little bit more, I heard the coyote, the second coyote shot. I heard him kind of like still making noises and, and struggling and kind of like shaking violently. I stood up, I put my father on the ground. By then he was kind of like getting stiff. I remember thinking that, oh, he's not gonna fit on the coffin correctly. So I tried to straighten him up, put him as straight as I could. I walked to the second coyote shot. And when I saw it, it was huge. It was humongous compared to the other one. When I saw him, I was so enraged. I, I was so mad at this coyote. I want him to suffer. I wanted to kill him, but not just to kill him in a peaceful or fast way. No, no, I want him to suffer. So at first, when I walk up to the animal, I put my right knee on top of his chest and, and the animal screamed. And then I grab his head with my left hand and I grabbed the gun with my right and I couldn't even take the safety off because my finger was broken. So I remember using the other hand and then I grabbed the head and I was just about to shoot the coyote on the head when all of a sudden it hit me and I said, no, 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 no. You don't deserve this. You deserve to die, to die a slow and painful death. You deserve to feel what I felt throughout the night. You did this to me. I'm gonna make you pay. So I put the gun away and I pulled my knife. I stuck the knife on his chest and I started cutting through and I, you could hear the animal screaming of pain and, and fear. I look at the animal in the eyes. I could see its fear and all of a sudden it hit me. I was that coyote hours before in such fear and such terror. 
I know I said that I want them to feel what I felt, and I know I, I want them to suffer. But all of a sudden, I got so much compassion for the animal, and so much sympathy for it. I pulled the knife out of its chest. And then when I look at it, I said, oh, I said, friend, I wish we would have met in different circumstances. I could have been your friend. And I could have fed you. And not like a pet, I told him. You could have been my friend. And then I I looked at him again and I said, don't worry, I want to take you off of your misery. So I pulled the gun again. And then I said, you did what you had to do. And I did what I had to do. On your mind, I was just preventing you from eating, from taking a meal. And in my mind, I was defending my father. You did what a coyote is supposed to do, and I did what a human is supposed to do. So I said, goodbye, friend. I wish we would have met in different circumstances. I point the gun at its head. I pull the trigger. The animal shook for like five seconds, and all of a sudden, stopped. I picked up the animal, and when I picked it up, I could feel the fleas crawling through my arms and jumping on my face. I didn't care. So I picked it up, and I saw this kind of like a bush, and I kind of put it, put it under that bush. And then I went to pick up the other one, and the other one was already dead. I picked it up, and I put it on top of the first one. Then I looked at my father and continued to cry. I could see now the, the path. So I picked up my dad and I started to carry him. It was really hard to carry now because he was more stiff and he was more like an upright position. I was trying to carry him the best I could. I picked him up and, and as I started walking, I heard noises. I stopped and I pay attention to the noises and, and I could hear people talking. And I got really happy. Maybe about a hundred yards down, there's a fork on the road where the road separates for a place where you can go with animals on the mountain. It's less treacherous. Then if you go straight up, it's shorter, but it's it's more, it's, it's, it's really treacherous for animals. So I wanted to beat them to the fork. So they don't, I said, they, if they have horses, they're gonna go to the fork and I'm gonna miss them. So I kind of like hurry down, try to get my dad and I keep stumbling down the mountain. He was really heavy. I felt extremely weak. I was dehydrated. Uh, uh, I was really hungry, really thirsty. I put my dad down and I went up on a rock to look down and I saw them and they were going down the fork of the road. I couldn't scream at them. I couldn't talk. I couldn't ask for help. So what I did, I pulled the gun, pointed towards the mountain and I pulled the trigger. When they hear the gunshot, I could hear them. There were two kids, one about my age. I was like 14, 15 at the time. And uh, the other kid was older than me, like 17 years old. And they had two mules with them. And I could hear the father of the two kids screaming and saying, don't shoot, don't shoot. We're not part of a drug cartel, don't shoot. We're just farmers. I'm here with my children, please don't shoot. And I couldn't, I couldn't scream at him and say, hey, uh, I'm not shooting at you. I just want to get your attention. I just need you to help me. The guy kind of like runs back to the road and he's waving his hands at me. And then he sees me. And, and then when he sees me, I'm waving, but I still have the gun on my hand. He looked at me and he noticed I was, you know, I was young. I was 15. 
and he was screaming at me saying, what is wrong with you, kid? Why are you shooting at us? I keep waving him to come and see me. So, and he says, what, what do you, what do you want? So he walks a little bit closer to me and, but he's very uh, apprehensive because I have the gun on my hand. So what I did, so he can see, I pull, I pull the clip out and then I unchamber the bullet, put the gun on my waist so he can feel more at peace. And then I keep waving at him and I keep pointing to the ground and he doesn't know what I'm talking about. He comes closer, I run down and I pick up my dad so he can see and I'm pointing at my dad. And then, and then when he sees that, he walks towards me and he says, he says, who's that? I said, it's my dad. He says, is he dead? I nodded. I said, yes. He said, wait, how, how did he die? And I just keep pointing at the chest, at the chest. And then he says, oh, pain? I just said, yes, from pain. And then he says, did you spend all night here? I nodded. How did you survive here at night? Nobody does that. Not even the cartels venture at night, really. I, I, just, I just keep pointing at my dad and keep asking him for help. And then I keep telling him to come and help me. And when he noticed what I was trying to tell him, he says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to help you. He says, I want nothing to do with this. No, 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 no. I'm out of here. I know how to plead. So I put my hands here next to me like this, pleading like, like this and say, please, please help me. And then uh, he, uh, he says, okay, I'll help you, but only down the mountain. But I'll do it if you give me the gun. I shook my head, no. I called the man to where I had the coyotes and I pointed to the coyotes. Coyotes, you can sell the fur. Some people sell the meat. They, you can take the head uh, to, the, to the local ranchers and they'll pay you, they give you money. They kill their cattle, so they, they, they reward you with money for each head that you take. I showed him the coyotes signaling that you can have them if you help me. And all of a sudden, he actually went higher by saying, okay, I'll take the coyotes and I'll take the gun and I'll help you. And then I shook my head, no. And the guy kept saying, no, then I can't help you. At that moment, I was so desperate that I was just about to pull the gun. I wasn't gonna kill him, but I was gonna point it at him and, 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 tell, and tell him, you better help me. All of a sudden, the guy changed his mind and he says, Okay, I'll take the two coyotes, but I'm going to help you only down the mountain. That's it. Yeah, okay, okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. So he gets one of the mules ready while I bring my father's remains down the mountain. And, and when we're putting my father on top of the mule, when I first noticed that the damage he, he received from the coyotes and how they ripped through his calf, his ankle, I started crying, but no tears will come out. And it was really painful even try to talk or try to make any sounds. We made a slow walk down the mountain. And by the time we got out of the canopy, you could see now much better, much better. And you could see a little bit of the uh, sun coming up on the horizon. He helped me all the way down and he wanted to leave my father's body kind of away from the road. I signal him all the way to the road, all the way to the road. We go down. He says, okay, you get him down. So I got my father down. I keep looking at uh, the area where he was beaten by the coyotes. It was, it was really bad. So I kind of cover it with his pants and then I pull a little bit of weeds and then kind of put them on the area so nobody sees them. The guy looked at me and he says, okay, kid. He says, good luck. He says, I'm sorry about your dad. 
He says, but I'm taking the coyotes. So I just nodded yes, and he left. Then I started looking around and I didn't see anybody. So I tried to pick up my dad. When I was picking him up, I heard voices. I looked down on the road so I can get a better view of who it was. And I recognized the person. It was somebody who lives on the same town I live. And then I waved my hands. At first, he didn't pay any attention to me. I keep waving my hands until he saw me. He says, with an attitude, what do you want? And then I, I waved to come hurry. Then I pointed at my dad on the, on the ground. He knew who my dad was. He looked at him and he says, oh, is he dead? I nodded, yes. Yeah, then he said, when? So I was trying to tell him, you know, last night. And then I pointed to the mountain. And he said, did he die in the mountain? Then I nodded, yes. He said, wait, you spend all the night in the mountain with him. Again, I nodded, yes. He said, what happened? Then I pointed again to the mountain. He says, no, 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 tell me what happened. And then I pointed to my throat. I can't talk. He says, why? I shook my head saying, I don't know. So he uh, said, uh, wait right here. Let me, let me go get help. So he was running around trying to find people. And, and they were planning, okay, how can we take him over there? By then, I noticed one of his shoes was missing. In my mind, I wanted to take him complete, right? I felt like, you know, he had to have his shoe. So I tapped the guy who first helped me, and then I pointed, telling him that, that I, w I was going to go find the shoe. So I, I started walking carefully because the grass was kind of high. I didn't want to miss it, so I started walking on the same trail we came in. I kept walking and walking until we got, I don't know, maybe 150 yards, maybe. Uh, I found it. I remember that before I found it, I heard noises like a truck or something and people talking. There was a the, uh, tree, so I couldn't really see beyond the trees. And as I was coming down, I noticed what was happening. They stopped this truck and they were putting my father in the back of the truck to take him back home. So I started running towards them. And I was so weak that I keep stumbling and falling. I picked myself up. By the time I went down there, they took off. And I couldn't scream at them to tell them, stop, stop, you're leaving me behind, stop. No, they just took off and they were in a hurry. So I ran on the road and I could see the, uh, the truck getting lost on the dust and on the distance. And then it went into a curve and I kept running and running to the point that I couldn't run anymore. And again, I started crying. My tongue kept getting stuck on the roof of my mouth, so I could use my fingers to try to unstick it. So I kept walking, I saw this little puddle on the side of the road. Some people use the water from the mountain. They have little dams, I think they're called. They use it to water their little fields. I got close to the puddle and used my hand. That's when I, first time I saw the damage I had on my hands. My wrist was purple, and then my fingers were getting like really swollen and purplish, and also my other hand too. And I couldn't move them. They were really swollen. It was really painful. So I used my right hand and I started scooping water and put it in my mouth. And when I was putting it in my mouth, it tasted like really bitter. I swallowed the first time, man, it was so painful. And then I grabbed another one, and then I started spitting it. And I noticed that it was spitting kind of like blood. 
mixed with water. That was the damage done on my throat. And as of today, if my, you know, you hear my, my voice gargly like that, since then it was never the same. When I was scooping the water, I noticed that there were tadpoles in there. And I was so hungry that I, I started eating the tadpoles. I ate three of them. I couldn't take any more. I made my way home, sometimes running, sometimes walking. I have to pass two towns and you have to go through the middle of them. And as I walk by it, my back, it's all bloody. Everybody thought I was shot because you could see the ribs on the shirt and then the holes in there, but it was from the coyotes biting. And people kept asking me questions like, where were you? Did you know that your father is dead? And I kept nodding, yes. And I just kept walking. And people going like, hey, then your father just died? And I kept nodding, yes. And they kept saying, what are you doing here? I couldn't answer to them anyways. So I started just ignore him. Next town I passed, same thing. When I got into my town where I, where I lived, everybody kept looking at me, just talking to themselves, more secretive talking and then just looking at me. And I ignored everybody. I went through there because that's the only way you could go through it. If I could have evade that, I would have. So I walked to the house and the first thing I saw, I saw a lot of people there and outside the house, there's one of the elders and one of the elders sees me and says, weren't you with your dad when this happened? Where were you? Where were you when your father needed you? I just pointed to the mountain and then he says, talk to me. That's disrespectful. I'm talking to you. Why don't you talk to me? I pointed to my throat that I couldn't talk. And then, of course, he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said that you're supposed to be with your father. He said, you're a coward. You're supposed to defend them. I just turned around and looked at him. I was very upset with him. I didn't want to make a big deal there, so I just kept walking. When I walked, I heard people screaming, Luis is back, Luis is here, Luis is here. And then my mother came out running. I thought she came running to see if I was okay. I thought she came running to, to embrace me or hug me. She came in running towards me and she stopped about 10 feet away from me. Then she slowly walked and I'll just stand there. And then I opened my arms to give her a hug. I thought she was gonna give me a hug, but she slapped me. She slapped me on the face and she says, where were you when your father needed you the most? Where were you when he was dying up on that mountain, when he was in agony? Where were you? I just pointed to the mountain. She says, talk to me. Why don't you talk to me? I pointed at my throat. She says, why don't you talk, talk? I pointed inside my mouth. She just shook her head in disagreement and she was crying and she said, when your father needed you the most, where were you? I pointed again to the mountain. Then she turned around and left. 
I was very hungry. I thought she was going to say, my son, can I, can I feed you something? Can I give you something? She was very upset. She was in a lot of pain too, of course. And me not being able to talk or explain things, that didn't go very well for me either. And there was no one there to defend me or say something in my favor. So what I did, I, I walked down the lake and it's, it, the lake, it's, it was, it was, it's very close to my house. I just walking through the water and it was about probably like almost chest high. I submerged myself on the water and I started screaming inside the water, screaming. I didn't want anybody to hear me. So I just started screaming and it was so painful. It was so painful. At that point I was like, I don't care. If I drown, I don't really care. So I kept screaming in there. And then when I was there in the lake, I was taking sips of water, kind of like trying to gargle and then spitting it. And it was nothing but just blood, blood. It was really painful. So I came out of the water and as I was walking back in the house, the same elder approached me and he kind of like confronted me saying, look at that. On top of that, you're doing this. Don't you know that your mother works very hard and you're getting wet like that, just like that. So your mother can wash your clothes again. Really? Really? I looked at him again and I just turned my back on him and walked. And then he says, what's that you have in the back? Did you fall down running away? How come you have blood on your back? What is that? You probably fall down, huh? Running away from the coyotes, running away from the mountain. I turned around and I took some steps towards him and I controlled myself. I just walked inside. At that time, I had only three t-shirts. One for work, that was it, the one I was wearing. Another one for like, you know, less, you know, less special events. And then and the third one for like very special events. Then I just one. And only one was available. So I took off the wet shirt. And then when I took the, the shirt off, I looked on the side of the shoulder and I felt the flesh. It was ripped through. I used the wet shirt to kind of like dab the area. I was still bleeding. I, I put in the other shirt and I was bleeding over it. And I felt bad because these people are going to say, now you got the other shirt dirty. But the pants I left, that was really wet. Then I woke up my dad and he, he was on the floor. He was on, they put a blanket and then the, his body was there. So I just sit right there. I sit there. And I sit there for, for hours, just looking at him and crying, but no tears come out. I was really dehydrated. Then I went down to the lake again. And when I was there, I was reaching for the water so I can drink a little bit from the lake. And I felt steps behind me. And I heard this voice behind me that said, I'm sorry about your dad. I mean, I recognize the voice. I know who it was. I look back and I just nodded, yes. And then she said again, I'm sorry about your dad. I nodded again. Then she said, I got you this. This fish was my fish for me, but I ate half and I kept the other half for you. That was my wife, Maria. She wasn't my wife, of course, at the time. She wasn't even my girlfriend. I just nodded. I meant to say thank you, not just not it. And then I pointed and I said, I wanted to put the plate down so I can eat it later. And she says, no, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, I'll take the plate back. I'll just, I'll stay here. 
And I couldn't convince her to go. I wanted to be alone. But she didn't ask much questions. She didn't ask what happened. She was just there. And that really comforted me. So I started eating, and as I was eating, I was. she says, oh, I brought salsa. She says, it's a bit spicy. I didn't want to be disrespectful. And I just dove a little bit of the salsa. Oh, man. It was so painful when I was swallowing. Even just the fish by itself, it was really painful swallowing. So I was being really careful. And she says, oh, do you have like a sore throat? And then I nodded, yes. I said, yes. So I, I finished the food. I, 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 felt, I felt strong after eating. I felt the difference. And then uh, uh, I grabbed the little plate. It, it was, it was a pl metal plastic and this hard plastic. And then I, uh, I walked uh, uh, like two or three spaces. I was really, really close to the lake and I was just about to wash it. And then she says, no, 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 no. She says, I wash it, I wash it. Don't worry about it, don't worry about it. She said, uh, uh, are you gonna be here later on? She said, uh, I can bring you dinner. And then I shook, no, I said, no, I, I meant to say, it's okay, I'll be fine, it's okay. Then she said, oh, no, 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 I'll bring you some. She said, and I wanna see if I can find something for your throat. I nodded, I meant to say, thank you. So she left. That really brightened my day, you know, that really helped me. Yeah, she was the same age as I was, 15. I went back to the house and I just sit right next to my father's remains. And then people came in and put my father in a coffin. You know, somebody called my brothers from wherever they lived here in the U.S. They right away, they found a plane to go back. Some came in the 25th and others came in on the 26th. The doctor had to prepare my father's remains so they could last that long. First of all, my two older brothers, the one next to me, in age, and then the other one above him came in. When I saw them, I was sitting in a corner. I couldn't say anything, but you know, just thinking about what happened. Captain wasn't even there, he was in a mission. When I saw my older brother stood up and I walked towards him and he, he saw me, he says, there you are. But he said it in a violent way. And I didn't know, I didn't know he was gonna do that, but as I approached him, I opened my arms to give him a hug. And when I opened my arms, he punched me right in the face, as hard as he could. And then he says, where were you when my father needed you? That's why you're here, that you were here to protect him. Where were you? Where were you? I looked down the, the floor and then I pointed to the mountain. He says, why don't you talk, you coward? Then I looked at him and I wanted to tell him I was at the mountain with him. Where were you? And then he approached me again and he tried to punch me again. I unloaded on him. I don't know what happened to me. I got really blinded by anger. And right next to my father's remains were fighting. After I punch him three times on the face and he goes down, my other brother approaches me. He, he was bigger and stronger. He's trying to take me down and beat me. But as soon as he opened his arms, tried to grab me, I punched him three times again. And he went down also and then Everybody's making a huge deal. You know, the, the women of the town all screaming and crying. 
my mom runs in and she says, your father's death still so fresh. And look at you fighting your own brothers, beating up your own brothers right next to his casket. I was so hurt. I was so deeply wounded. Not just because of what happened also, but the rejection and the way they asked if I didn't matter. So I hit the gun uh, from everybody. And then I looked around when she was saying that I looked around because there was more people then. I looked around and pointed to them. You know, you saw what happened. Tell her, tell her. You saw what happened. They attacked me. I defend myself. Tell them, tell them, tell her. There was nobody found to defend me. Nobody. I just look around me and my brothers, they were helping each other up and then looking at me with this anger. I pushed them off. I went to pick up the gun and then I walked into the forest. I found a spot right behind a tree. And when I was there, I remember pulling the gun, but my hand by then, it was so, even when I punched my brother, I did so much damage to my hand and my fingers. I made it so worse. I felt the pain shooting up my arm. At this point, I couldn't even close my hand. And while I was there, that time I wasn't gonna fail. That time I was gonna kill myself. Nobody cares about me, nobody loves me. What do I have to live for? I said, I'm gonna give them what they want. They want me dead? Okay, I'll give them that. Before that, I put a note. It wasn't a note, it was more like a letter. And in the letter I explained what happened at the mountain because I couldn't talk. So when anybody was asking me what happened, I was like, read the letter, read right there. I was pointing at the letter. They didn't work very well in my favor because most people in there, they can't read. They can't. So they said, read it to me. I was like, oh, if I could have talked, I could tell you instead of read it to you. And I put it there. And then uh, I, I learned later on that one of my brothers was so angry that he ripped that off the, the wall. I made the decision to go back in the forest and take my life. I sit down and I, I keep crying and sobbing. And in my mind, I was like, I'm not going to wait for the voice to come in because I know I said, I know the voice is going to try to get me off of it, but not this time. It was more like a revenge towards my family. I said, okay, they want that, I'll give them that. I was just about to pull the trigger when I heard steps behind me and I felt my friend's presence. And later on, he told me that it's not his presence, it's actually Holy Spirit's presence. He just under the guidance and, and under the protection of Holy Spirit, the feeling I feel. So he says, it's not of mine, it, it's God's. So I felt him and then I knew who he was. I knew it was Asael, Rafa. I stood up, I was struggling to stand up because I was weak and then my arm, I couldn't really support myself with my hand. And when I saw him, I was really, really angry at him. I looked at him and, and I started screaming at him kind of like rah, making noises, making noises, trying to tell him to uh, to go away, you know, waving my hands to get out of here, get out of here. And then he just looked at me and he said, the pain is so unbearable, that's why I'm here to help you. 
And in my mind, I was like, yeah, where were you the night before? Where were you? Where were you when everybody was talking to me this? By then I knew that he could understand what I think. So we started this conversation. He reassured me that he was there. He reassured me that the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit were there and he was there with them. He says, there was a battle going on for your soul. There was a battle, the spiritual, that you didn't see that we were fighting on your behalf. I remember raising the gun and then grabbing it with my right and then remember that the recoil is gonna be so brutal on my arm, I switched to the left. I was gonna shoot at him. I was gonna shoot him. I was, I was trying to shoot Asael. And I couldn't do that. I couldn't do it. He didn't try to stop me. He didn't say, don't do it. Later on, I told him, hey, I was just about to shoot you. And he says, yeah, it would have been a worse of a bullet anyways. When I couldn't shoot him, I put the gun down and then I tried to approach him and I was trying to punch him and I couldn't punch him. I couldn't attack him. All I did, I just broke. I broke. He embraced me and when he hugged me, for the first time, I could shed tears. I don't know if I was hydrated again, I don't know. I could feel the tears coming down my cheeks and I could feel this emotion, like I could let something out. He embraced me for maybe 10, 15 minutes, not saying a thing, just hugging me. And then after I compose myself, he walks back to a bush, bends down, picks up water, bottled water. He picks it up and he opens it and he says, drink this. So I drink it. As I was drinking it, I was being very careful when I was drinking because it was really painful. But I was drinking it, it was very soothing. It wasn't painful, but it was really refreshing. And, and I felt like a, like a dry sponge. When, when it gets wet, I felt hydrated. I felt strong, and, and, and but I couldn't talk still. With him, I could communicate just by thinking. And he could talk or he could just think also. But most of the time, he talked. He was telling me, he says, look, the date it's already been set where you're gonna be healed from all of this guilt. After I had that encounter with Rafa in the woods, he actually told me, he says that Captain Herrera is coming. By the time you get home, he's gonna be there waiting for you. He says, so go home now. He knows about your dad. I went home and then I saw Captain and he was there waiting for me. And when he saw me, he, he ran towards me. He no longer called me Luis. From that moment forward, they started, also Rafa started calling me son. So when my father passed, they, they, they don't only call me Luis, they called me son. He said, I'm sorry about your loss, son, I'm sorry. He was apologizing to me for not being there for me at that moment. He says, I wish I was in the mountain with you. I wish I was. He says, I'm so sorry I wasn't there. And I just keep nodding. Yes, yes, yes. And then he says, what's wrong? And then I pointed at my throat. I had my hand kind of like hanging down. And then he looks and says, what's this? And then he sees the blood on my back and he says, what, what's that? He calls the medic, Mexico, the medic for the army. They'll call him medic because medic is a translation of medical, which means a doctor. And they're not doctors. So they call him sanidad, which means healing. So he screams the word healing. The medic or doc of the company, he knows it's him. So he runs to the front and said, yes, sir. 
Everywhere he go, there were about 30 of them, but only about 12 of them or 14 were selective that were around him always. Those 40, everywhere he went, they set up a perimeter because he was a high target too. And to protect everybody there too. He was very upset. He looks at my mom and he says, have you noticed this? Have you noticed that? Have you checked him? Have you taken him to the doctor? Did you even ask him how this happened? My mom just said, well, with all the pain we're going through, it slipped my mind. And he just says, look, I understand your pain and I respect you. But if you're not going to take care of him, give him to me and I'll take care of him. Okay. And then he calls the medic, take him to the base. He says, uh, take x-rays, everything, and uh, check his back and check why he can talk. One of the soldiers says, how are we going to compensate for it? Because, you know, you have to have a... Uh, if somebody's broken, they have to say, okay, who is? Because they, all that costs money. The captain says, I'll sign for it. He says, put it on my tab. I'll pay for it. And then the medic says, that wouldn't be necessary, sir. He says, there's not going to be no report. He says, okay, thank you. So he took me in. He x-rays the arm. He says, there's a fracture here. And uh, he kind of fixed it because he says the bone kind of like was overlapping. I don't know what he meant by that. So he fixed it. He says, it's going to hurt, okay? So he just pushed it and something popped. And then he put a cast on it. And then on my fingers, he put these things on my fingers. He looked at my throat and then he said, this is beyond me. Throat, I don't know what it is. He said, you need a specialist for that. Okay. So I said, okay. He gave me this medication. It was like the equivalent to Advil. Here, take one right now. So he gave me one and that really helped. That really took the pain away. Took me back home and then captain was there and he walked up to the medic and he says, what's the report? And he says, he has these three fingers broken forearm here. He says, it's broken. He says, okay, how long before he heals? He says, oh, he says, maybe, I don't know, three, four months, maybe. I know it's a lot. So he says, okay. He looked at me. He says, I'm canceling all of your fights. I was kind of like mad about it because I wanted to fight. All of that time that I couldn't find, he was teaching me on up in the, the mountains, how to, you know, track and uh, how to evade track special forces stuff. I felt three types of guilt. And the first one was not being able to get my father out of that mountain. That was a huge guilt, a huge burden to carry. The second one, it was not being able to protect him. I felt very responsible because the animals beat him. I couldn't even prevent it. And the third one was because the last memory I have of my father talking to them and him talking back to me, it was that I got into an argument with him. I got into a fight with him. That was really eating me alive. I was, that was horrible. Until December 19th, 1994, at the border. God didn't just save me from the pain I was feeling at the moment, but he took, took a lot of that guilt, all that guilt away from me. That's still almost seven years away. Yes. This experience, you had night terrors? Oh, oh yes. Every, almost every night. So even though Raphael comes to you and you have this moment of hugging or whatever, that doesn't really 
let God into your life in a way that you knew who God was and could walk with him. No. You still were all alone in this pain for seven more about seven more years. Yeah, and then you still have this incident with Captain Herrera's men kidnapping you in the mountains. I mean, there's still stuff that goes on in your life right. that's horrendous. Right. And you have no understanding. You have all this guilt that you didn't do enough for your dad. I know when you told me the story, you said those mountains are a monument to your failure. That's a long time to carry that. I was raised in a way that you suppress those things and you don't let them out. You know, you just suppress them, right? That's what a man does. And then part of that engagement at the border, all that guilt go away? It didn't bother me, if you will. I didn't have the night terrors after that, the, or the uh, nightmares. I didn't have those anymore. Despite these incredible encounters Lewis experienced, he had no one to help him process the trauma of that night or its aftermath. He bore the false guilt of not being able to rescue his father and the false accusations of a family and a village that did not want to know his story. And even though God was actively engaged in those events, Lewis had no one to show him what that meant or how to respond to him. It would take another 29 years before he would venture to tell that story to someone else and process the emotions he'd buried for so long. And that's when his old friend Rafa appears. And that encounter would tie together a number of loose ends. Next time on My Friend Lewis. And I know it's him. I know he's behind me. <laughs> and I just closed my eyes and started remembering how I saw him. Like you and I, you know, not this mystical being or, or he's not fluorescent. Like a person like you and me. So I start remembering all those moments I spent with him. All of a sudden, he says, if you view me like that, then you can turn around and see me. And when I turn around, I saw him. My Friend Lewis is a production of Blue Sheep Media in association with Lifestream.org. Copyright 2021 by Wayne Jacobson. All rights reserved. Produced by Ken Joy for Ken Joy Media.